0: we you'd like to turn into your Bibles, John chapter 20, verse 24. Would you please
1: stand for the reading of God's word?
0: Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you.
1: This is the word of God. You may be seated. Every Easter Sunday, there is a challenge for me. The challenge is to not preach every account of the resurrection and the gospels to you and keep you here for three, four hours. Um, This is the pivotal point of all of scripture is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My sermon today is going to be basically starting in verse 11, even though the meat of it will be from what we just read right there. The first eyewitness on Easter morning was Mary Magdalene. She was a woman who had been possessed by seven spirits and delivered by Jesus. And she is visiting the tomb of her friend, of her teacher. The man she thought was going to change the world is dead. She had seen him die. She had laid him in the tomb, helped lay him in the tomb. And she is going there. And she is the first to see the resurrected Christ. She wasn't one of the 12. She wasn't his mother or a relative, just a convert. This unassuming woman will be the first person to witness the greatest event in all of the cosmos and beyond. Greater than the Red Sea being split in two. Greater than fire from heaven. Greater still than when God delivered Israel time and time again from tyrants much greater than God saving Noah and his family from a worldwide flood. Greater even than the creation of the world and the universe. She has come to the tomb early, so early that it is dark, but she will see the one who spoke into the darkness light. She got there and the stone had been rolled away. So she gets a couple of the disciples. I like in John's gospel, John makes sure to let everybody know that I got there first, but Peter went in. He's like, I'm faster than Peter. I just want everybody to know that. He goes in, they don't see anybody there. So they take off, but Mary sticks around and we are told that she is weeping by the tomb. When she had got there, the stone had been rolled away. So she went and got a couple of the disciples who looked into the tomb and left, but Mary stayed. You can imagine the emotions, can't you? When it says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Wasn't it enough that they just killed him? Now they have to desecrate his very body. You can understand how she is feeling. It's the way everybody is feeling. Every one of his disciples, but she expresses it emotionally as she weeps outside the tomb. It just seems indignity, indignity after indignity. She then looks in and she sees two angels sitting where the body of Jesus was, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, I've read this portion, I bet you have as well, many, many times. And we kind of skip over this part. We understand that there's angels. And I'll tell you, before, I mean, I kind of just kind of saw them as decorations. Um, like, I don't know why they're doing, what they're doing there other than to experience, to witness this amazing thing. But there's something incredibly significant. So you have the bench where they would have laid the body of Jesus in the tomb. Burial customs in those days were not to dig a hole in the ground and put a body in, but it was to put them in a mausoleum tomb. You then let the body decay until its bones, and then you put the bones with the other bones. So where Jesus was laid was kind of like a bench. And you have these two angels sitting at the, at the foot and at the, at the head of the bench. See, in Exodus, God told Moses to build for him an ark, which is just a fancy word for a box. And in this, he was to put the staff that had budded. He was to put the Ten Commandments that broke and a jar of manna. And on top of it, he was to fix the mercy seat. The mercy seat was, it was like a bench with two angels facing one another, two cherubim facing one another. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the great high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would take the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it on the mercy seat because God said between the angels he would speak, he would be with them. It is why when a king of Judah was encompassed by an army the world had never seen before and there was no chance of escape, he cried to the Lord, his God, who could save him. And he said, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. Here are two angels and they are out of a job. The mercy seat has gotten up and walked away for God will now meet with his people face to face. He is going to send his Holy Spirit into their very heart, the, cry, the spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. In Jonah chapter four, when God is confronting the prophet about his sorrow over the death of a plant, he tells him, why were you so concerned over the plant? You didn't plant it, you didn't water it, and you sure didn't make it grow. The, the implication is, how bad would you feel if you were the gardener? But the prophet's Lord was the gardener of, t- of 120,000 people in the ancient city of Nineveh. He is the gardener of all of creation. Now Mary sees Jesus, and she mistakenly believes he is the gardener, and, and, and asks, where he's moved the body of Jesus. She's, she's incorrect and correct all at the same time. He did move the body of Jesus because he was Jesus and he moved around. He is also the gardener for he is the one who was the gardener in Eden. He was the gardener before Eden. He is the one who plants every, every living soul. He is the one who knits them together in their mother's womb. He is the one who plants. He is the one who waters. He is the one who causes it to grow. He knits them together in their mother's womb and he knows them. It's obvious Mary doesn't realize this is Jesus. Until he says her name, Mary, when they were, when they were chatting, when they were chatting, she didn't know who he was. It wasn't until he says her name and Mary is um, an Aramaic translation of Miriam, the, the name that of Moses' sister. He says to her, Mary, and she knows who it is. And she turns and says, Rabboni, teacher, Rabboni, teacher. She recognizes him. But of course she does, for he says, my sheep know my voice. He knows her by name. And when she calls out her name, all of a sudden she has this incredible recognition. It is her savior. It is her God. Of course, Jesus had taught that he had to go. He had to go so that the comforter could arrive. She wants to cling on to him, of course. Can you imagine a loved one who's passed and you see them again? I mean, you'd want to wrap your arms around their knees because they're not getting away. This was her friend. This was her teacher. This is her savior. This is her God. So she sees him. She wants to wrap her arms around him. And he tells her, do not cling on. Do not cling to me for I have not yet gone to the father. What he's saying to her is that yes, I know I love you, you love me, but let me go so that you can never lose me again, so that I can send the Spirit of Christ, the Comforter, to come once again. It is, it is after this that Jesus appears to his disciples. In other gospels, I I like how they present this, where Jesus is like, "I'm not a ghost." It's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not making pottery with them anymore. I'm not a ghost. See, a ghost can't eat fish. Look at me. I can eat. I can move. I can do things. And because at first they freak out. They have panic. And we see in, in, in John's gospel, he tells them, you know, peace be still. He, um, Jesus had said that he was, he was about to go to the Father, but not yet. He is the resurrected Christ appearing to his disciples. He shows himself to his disciples, and he breathes on them in John's account. This is a mirror event to the creation of Adam. When God created Adam, he formed him out of the clay of the earth and he breathed on him and he became a living soul. Jesus now resurrected, has his disciples, he breathes on them, that's what John says, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. With the first Adam, he became a living spirit, but now the second Adam breathes on others and they now receive the Holy Spirit himself. In the resurrection, the resurrection once again is the most important event, doctrine, what have you, of all the cosmos and beyond. Paul the Apostle will say that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. What we read about in the book of Acts is nice and all, but it's useless if Christ is not, has not been raised. What we read about during Christmas is beautiful, but it will have no impact if Christ was not bodily resurrected. Go ahead and play that video if you do not mind. Thank you very much.
2: Before the foundation of the world, his birth was foretold in the scriptures. His sacrifice was forewarned by the prophets, but it wouldn't have mattered. He was born of a virgin. He remained pure in the face of every temptation. He lived perfectly. Even his enemies couldn't bring a legitimate charge against him, but it wouldn't have mattered. He pursued the unlovable, he served the unworthy, he healed the incurable. He endured the betrayal of friends. He endured the condemnation of the crowds. He endured the cross with all its shame and suffering, but it wouldn't have mattered. None of it would have mattered if the grave had not been empty. if death had not been defeated, if Jesus had not risen, none of it matters. But because of the resurrection, it all matters. His suffering matters. It means we were bought with an unspeakable price. His love matters. It means God's love is not only unconditional, it's incomprehensible. His life matters. It means God became fully man to become our perfect sacrifice. And the prophecies matter. It means God was and is and always will be in control. And everything happens according to his plan. It means that faith in him is not in vain. Belief in him is not foolish. Those who tell the story are not liars. And those who trust in Jesus should not be pitied. Ultimately, the resurrection means that what you do with Jesus is all that should matter to you.
1: christ has not been raised then our preaching is useless and so is your faith all our faith all of our belief everything about us all of the cosmos hinges on this one thing that christ has been raised with that said there are throughout church history people who claim to be part of the church and they've come up with what i call damnable theories uh, i'm not cussing i mean that in the most strictest term possible in which they try to empty the resurrection of its power In the first century, a big one would be that Christ was not raised in the flesh. That's why you'll see in the New Testament, in the epistles, it'll say if somebody comes saying that Jesus did not come in the flesh. Because that was the thought, that everything in the flesh was, was corrupt and vile. So when Christ is now risen and he was spiritually raised, and people hallucinated a body, you have the swoon theory. The swoon theory is that Christ merely passed out on the cross he nearly he merely fainted on the cross, they then take him down, put him in his tomb, and the coldness of the tomb makes him wake up there's there 's so many problems with this theory let 's just kind of go through them right now. Um, one of them, the soldiers who crucified Christ were professionals they weren 't the posse at the beginning of Hang em High. they knew how to kill somebody. they knew when the person was dead in fact, they spear him just to make sure. They knew what they were doing. Second major issue with this, have you ever tried to walk after you stub your toe? You look pretty funny, right? Jesus meets two people on the road to Emmaus, seven miles away. Seven miles away. Let me tell you something. Many of you, if I forced you to run seven miles, you might not make it, like literally. Jesus walks, you're telling me, Jesus walks seven miles with with bleeding out, Hole in his side, holes on his head, holes in his hands, holes in his feet. That is absolutely ridiculous. You know, all of these, and there's so many, you know, actually every every Easter season, open up any major publication and you'll have some op-ed attacking the resurrection. All of these theories are just... Is just a, a reinterpretation of what the snake said to Eve, did God really say? You know, you may, um, you don't have to be a parcel tongue to know snake when you hear it. It's easy, it's just lies. That's the language of the snake. But all lies come down to this one thing did God really say? Jesus' bodily resurrection tells us so much of the mysteries of God, it tells us that death is unnatural. It tells us that we are unified beings. This is one thing that, you know, it's so, it's so glorious. It, it is a central tenet of doctrine in every mainline denomination. Every evangelical church believes this one thing, but very few people will preach on it. And it's the bodily resurrection of the dead. That one day you will have a resurrected body like Christ. I think sometimes we get so focused on what happens right now when we die. Right now when we die, our body is separated from our spirit and our soul, and it goes up to God. But at the end of all things, at the beginning of the best things, there will be the resurrection of the dead that we read about in Revelation. This was the great hope of the early church. Not heaven, but I will be with my God. It is, it is so glorious. It is so wonderful. In the resurrection of Christ, it points towards this thing. Now there is... No, I, I, I really like C.S. Lewis. I quote him a lot. But there's this quote from C.S. Lewis is that, that you are not a body. You are a spirit that has a body. No, you're body, soul, and spirit. That is how God created you. He breathed on Adam and he became a living being. Not he was already a living being and now he gave him a body. He breathed on it and became a living being. The resurrection of Christ tells us the mysteries of God when it comes to the resurrected, when it comes to the resurrection. And I say mysteries because that is how Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, describes them in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall all not sleep, but we shall all be raised. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. Doubting Thomas. This brings us to our scripture today. a scripture we just read about doubting Thomas. He gets a bad rap. He went on to be very influential in the early church. There are some traditions that um, believe that Thomas's actual full name was Judas Thomas, and that is why he is also called Didymus, which is in some of your translations. It means twin. In my translation, it just translates it into twin. Um, some trans, um, some people believe that that his full name was Judas Thomas, and that he is the Judas mentioned in John chapter fourteen when it says Judas, but not Ju- Judas, not Judas Iscariot, and. I'm not not entirely convinced that he is the same person. I just like that portion because I have to imagine whoever that Judas was talked to John beforehand and said, hey, when you write this down, I got a favor to ask. (laughs) Could you make sure people don't confuse me with Iscariot if you don't mind? Um, Thomas is known for his mistake, not his confession of Jesus as Lord and God. Thomas is the is that one friend who takes things a little too far. It's like, I, I get your skeptical, dude, but man alive, you are saying you won't believe until you actually put your hands in his wounds? You know, the, I said at the beginning, the hardest part of this message is not just preaching all of the resurrection scriptures in the four gospels. In every account of the crucifixion, we have people who even though they speak a great game, they are nowhere to be found during the crucifixion. Peter himself who said that he would die with Christ. He tries to kill a man who comes to arrest Jesus, he didn't, but he denies Jesus three times. He denies he even knows him. With the exception of Judas, Jesus visits each one of these men and women, and he restores them. He breathes on them and eats with them. How much more convincing do we need that it is not us, it is not our effort, it is our surrender. We look into the eyes of Christ we see reflected back in them someone who desperately needs mercy and uh, somebody that Christ is anxiously willing to give mercy. What I mean by that is if you look into each other's eyes, you look deep, past the white, past the color, into the black, you'll see reflected back in there somebody who needs mercy yourself, who is constant need of God's grace and mercy. But you are also seeing somebody that Christ died to give that to When it comes to the account of doubting Thomas here in John, there are a few things I want us to keep in mind as we go through this scripture. One is that Thomas is not alone in his doubt. Two, Thomas sees more vividly into the mirrors of mercy than what I just spoke to you just now. Finally, I'm going to talk to you about how we are engraved on his hands. Not alone in doubt. Verses 24 and 25. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, um, one of 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails and place my fingers into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas, he wasn't the only one to doubt. One thing that's frustrating when reading the gospel accounts of the resurrection is how nobody's expecting for Christ to be alive. Nobody's in the tomb. They're like, maybe he's wandering around. some. nobody's thinking that. I wonder, I wonder why Thomas gets the bad rap. He's called doubting Thomas, but there's many other people. I just talked about Mary, even though we see him, uh, even though they see him, they don't recognize him. Verse 24 starts off by telling us that Tommy boy here wasn't with the rest when Jesus appeared to them. That's my affectionate the name for Thomas. Um, but look at the rest. When Jesus first appears to them in the other gospels, they freak out and he tells them, don't worry, he's not a ghost. It's like the popular quote attributed to Mark Twain. The rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. Jesus would say the rumors of his death were right on the money. It's just not the rest of the story. Cue Paul Harvey. Mary thinks he's the gardener. And the two on the way to the Maus just thinks he's some guy who wants to walk with them. They don't recognize he's Jesus until he calls their name or until the end of the conversation. You know, you ever wonder why in comic books people don't recognize that Clark Kent is Superman? It's like the worst disguise in the world. It's like glasses on, glasses off. It's like, you know, if if Dave Dow takes off his glasses, I'm not like, who is that? It must be Superman. (laughs) You ever wonder why? I mean, like, I always thought it was like, maybe the people in comic books are just stupid. And then I came across this story of Henry Cavill. He plays Superman in the new movies. And during one of the premieres of the new movie, he found in Times Square a big old billboard of Superman or Batman versus Superman or whatever the ones were. And he's wearing a Superman shirt. And he's just chilling by the billboard, talking with people. People are coming up to him. He's he's interrupting people. Nobody has any clue who he is. Right above his head. He's Superman. You know something? And I, I laugh at everything, but then I think of a few weeks ago, uh, me, Becca, and Wendy were at the State Science Fair. Um, uh, Jackson was uh, presenting his stuff. And um, uh, Patrick's girlfriend, Lily, comes up to talk with us. But I'm not expecting Lily to be there. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking man, she looks exactly like Lily. Exactly like Lily. And I'm thinking to myself, as she's coming up, must be a friend of Wendy's. I'm wrong. So I don't say anything. And I felt so silly for it because I was thinking at that exact moment, after, after we go back home, I'm going to tell Becca, you know who looked exactly like Lily Patrick's girlfriend? That gal. And then she's like, hi, I'm, I'm Lily Patrick's. I was I felt so bad. I was like, I did recognize her. I just, it wasn't, when we don't expect people, we tend not to recognize them. They don't expect to see a resurrected Jesus, but they're not called doubters. Everyone who doesn't come to the cross, they're not called doubters, but they did doubt. How about everyone who said that they were with Jesus, they would die with Jesus, they would live for him, but found somewhere else to be when Jesus was tried and crucified? How about them? But then how about you and I? Have you had a time of doubt that God had forsaken you, that God had forgotten where you were at, what your address was? To my shame, I have to say, I've had a time like that when me and Becca, well, let me, let me go back. I was called in the ministry from an early age. I went to Bible college. I didn't go into ministry. It was a number of years until I actually went into anything that I thought was ministry. And I remember one time after me and Becca were married, I at this museum house that we were living at. We are kind of like the Adams family. You know, they live in a museum. People come to see them. And, um, so we're at this museum house. I'm the caretaker. And I'm having to rake these leaves. And this, this, this place had so many trees. And I'm raking these leaves. And I'm thinking about those times I was at the altar at camp and God had called me into the ministry. But I'm raking leaves. I'm sending out my resume. Nobody could care. Le- Everybody could ca- couldn't care less that I was sending out my resume. And I'm raking these leaves. And I'm like, God, did you forget of where my address is? I know I moved. And of course, I didn't say that. I just, I, just felt, I felt like God had abandoned me, and I knew that was silly, and I knew it was stupid, because God does not abandon his children. God had not forgotten what he had promised. But that's how I felt. Nobody calls me Doubting Jason, but how about you? What story from your life could you write down, and we could read it and call you Doubting, whatever your name is? And if you can't think of a specific time, how about this? When was, the, when was your last proper sin? Not one you didn't know about that you were committing when you were committing it, but one you knew and you did. Sin, my friend, is doubt. But we're not called doubting whatever. But doubt is loud. This is why we know Thomas, because Thomas is bombastic in his doubt. When I read verse 25, I'm always taken aback. I mean, it's like, settle down, dude. Jesus just died three days ago. But this is the nature of doubt. It's loud. I imagine Thomas is very much like Mary. He is just dealing inside what she expressed outwardly. He is weeping inside his very soul. He is angry. He is afraid. In fact, it said the disciples were afraid. He is sad. He is disillusioned. And all of that turns sour with doubt. And doubt is loud. It doesn't expect a resurrection because it doesn't dare hope for something so amazing. Going on verses uh, 26 through 28, we see it eight days have passed, a little more than a week. That's a long time to forget about a stupid thing you said when you're upset especially when you keep hearing person after person, I saw the resurrected Jesus. We were walking to Emmaus. He took out, he took out the Old Testament, explained about himself throughout it. And then all of a sudden we recognize him, and he was gone. Reports of Jesus keep piling, piling in, and perhaps he forgot, but Jesus didn't forget what he had said. You can imagine everybody is about to have a heart attack in Jesus when Jesus pops in this next time. And he says, peace be with you. Thomas had eight days to think about what he said and the reports keep piling in and in. But Jesus knew about Thomas's doubts and still loved him. This time, Jesus turns toward Thomas and he reminds him of what he said. I think we get the tone wrong if we read Jesus being angry with Thomas here. Verse 27, Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands and put your hand And place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I think we get the tone wrong if we think he is saying that through clenched teeth. Jesus knows of our weakness. It's what makes him the perfect great high priest. He knows Thomas's doubts and he loves him as he reinstates Thomas like he will reinstate Peter. When speaking of the end of Jonah, I mentioned how it's a mirror for us. God's law is a mirror for us. All of the scriptures are a mirror for us. But this is a mirror for us because God's mercy and love is not just for Nineveh. But it is also God's mercy and love is for the self-righteous hypocrite of a prophet. You look into someone's eyes close enough and you see your own reflection. And that is someone who needs mercy. It's the same with the eyes of the Savior. But Thomas, for Thomas... When he looks into the wounds of Christ, he sees the mirrors of mercy. It is in the blood of Christ that we have the mirror of mercy. We see ourselves in the blood of Christ. We see our reflection back at us. For the blood was shed for us on our account. Thomas' confession is similar to Peter's confession. When Jesus asked Peter, Who do you say say I am? Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you remember what Jesus said back? Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. What does this say of Thomas, but that the Father had revealed the Son to him? Somebody was telling me their testimony recently, and they told me that the Holy Spirit revealed to them the Son. And I, I, I couldn't say much for a second because I was like, that, that's, that's one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. What does he say back to Thomas? Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. There is a verse I want to read from, to you from Isaiah chapter 49 in a second. In Isaiah chapter 49, starting in verse 15, God is responding back to Israel who say that my God has forsaken me. My Lord has has abandoned me. And he says in verse 15, even he he says in verse 14, sorry, can a mother forget her babe? Even these may forget, yet I will not forgive you. Then in verse 16, he says, behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Thomas doubted, yes, but so have all of us. The mirrors of mercy are the wounds of Christ. We see our own reflection in the blood of Christ. See, he has engraved you on the palms of his hands. Has he forgotten you? Can the moon forget the sun? Can the nucleus forget? Can the nucleus of an atom forget its protons and electrons? They will, before God will forget you. Don't you see? Your name is written on his palms. He has engraved you upon his hands. In those times when we feel abandoned by God, remember the wounds of Christ. He has engraved you upon the palms of his hands and on his side and on his feet. Charles Spurgeon said of this verse that we should blush, overwhelmed and never say such foolish things again that our God has forsaken us for He has only forsaken one. And it was for our sake that he did this. In the last verse of this chapter, we see the purpose of the entire book of John, of Scripture in general. But these are written so that you may believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Worship team, would you come up at this time? I remember going to a conference and the speaker was saying, he was making the point that nobody's faith is perfect. We just have faith in someone who is perfect. That there's times in our life, there are promises of God that are somewhat difficult for us to believe at all times. Especially when we are wounded, especially when we are in the pit of sorrow. I want you to know that you're not allowed, you're not alone in your doubt. But that the the mirrors of mercy are before you. And to look into them and to see, to see reflected back at you, the one who needs mercy. And to remember that you are engraved upon his palms. I remind, remind of the man who Jesus said, all things, all things are for those who believe. And he says, I believe, forgive my unbelief. Maybe that might, might be some of us today. Maybe there's something that we've been waiting for so long and that we've just abandoned hope in it. I'm telling you that hope is being resurrected in your life right now as I'm speaking. That God wants to let you know that, there, that resurrection is the answer to every prayer. I believe, forgive my unbelief. My second point, my second challenge for you today, is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? If you were to die today, are you confident you would be with the Lord? If you are not, today is the day of salvation. I don't care if you've been coming to church for like 35, 80 years, or if this is your first time. Do you know before, on a shadow of a doubt that your name is engraved upon his palms? It is written in the Lamb's book of life. If not, today is the day of salvation. As we sing our final song, fall upon the mercies of the Lord today and he will save you. Or do you need to be reminded that your name is engraved upon his palms? Do you feel abandoned by God? None of God's children are abandoned by him because his only begotten felt he was abandoned. For he said, Eli, Eli, Lama Shabachtanai, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sorrows of Christ well up and are empowered by the resurrection for our good and his glory. Would you please stand with us as we sing our final song? This is our moment to respond to the message of, the message in the scripture today respond to the gospel to fall upon the mercies of christ if you do not know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you know the lord that he knows you that your name is written in his book it is your time to fall upon the mercies of god if you've been struggling with unbelief to remind yourself to remind yourself from the scriptures from the wounds of christ that your name is engraved upon his palms Thank